The song will work till Jesus comes reminded me of a story that Steve is familiar with. He may have even told him. That's okay. We can retell a few yarns here and there. There was another preacher in town who no longer in town, but he used to brag about preaching till Jesus comes, which sounds good only to preachers in preachers meetings. Everybody else tends to not tends to not uh, be a fan of that. But um, in any case, we're not going to preach till Jesus comes. We're going to preach preach the word tonight and uh, every night we have uh, every Sunday night we have. I'll make that clear. Welcome back tonight. We are talking about unswerving the stories of faith and hope found in the Old Testament and in the New. Along this theme, we have kind of been uh, addressing. Specifically, uh, the stories which tell the story of people who relied on Father, our Father, when they had really nothing else to hold on to. Our theme verse has been Hebrews 10.23, where it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we start out tonight, and I want to ask you, about two items that are really central to the story tonight. They are oil and flour. And Christy wanted me to make sure to tell you, this is not the totality of the flour we have in our house, but just for illustrative purposes. These two things are pretty common. I would say probably most of you have oil and flour in your homes, and you have them for the purpose of making things and cooking and so forth. In Scripture, there are many stories of people with very little that God used to make very much. Of course, you know the stories in the ministry of Jesus about a little boy with simply five loaves and two fish. And how that was able to, to feed a crowd of thousands. Not because of the size of the loaves and the fish, but because of whose hands they were in. Jesus told a story about giving, and to tell that story, he didn't talk about people with great amounts of wealth. He talked about a lowly widow with nothing left in the world but two simple mites worth a fraction of a penny. And as she offered those, she offered truly everything she had. And we're still talking about that story today. And in the Old Testament, there's a story of a widow. As we'll look at her story tonight, she didn't have much. But the little she had, placed in the right hands, became very, very much. For we as people of faith, sometimes we get focused on how much oil and flour we have. Especially in churches. Uh, We don't have enough. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough energy. We can never do that. Now, admittedly, I don't think that mindset is as prevalent here at Northside, but I think people of faith must always be on guard against focusing so much on how much provision we have and forgetting who the provider really is. That's the lesson of the widow tonight, and I hope that you will... Follow along. We are in the book of Second Kings, and as we go there, I want to give you a little bit of 
background, the story of the kings. I, I think I told you Second Kings, and I apologize. I meant First Kings. First Kings chapter 17. And the story of our text, we need to understand by a little bit of background. By understanding that Israel was in a drought. First Kings is the story of the good and the bad and the ugly leaders of Israel. Chapter 1 starts off with David handing off the kingdom to his son Solomon in that great moment where he says, Be strong, show yourself a man, and do the things that the Lord requires. It's a beautiful moment. Chapters 2 through 11 of 1 Kings cover Solomon's reign. It was uh, perhaps uh, a mixed bag, you might say. Some good things he did, but also some serious mistakes that he made. In chapter 12, there's a rebellion, and the United Nations splits the northern tribes and the southern tribes of Israel and Judah, respectively. And the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings is the story of 40 leaders reigning somewhere in the area of 350 years. Those leaders, some of them led for decades, some of them for mere days. Most of those 40 kings were evil. There were a few exceptions. There were some good kings. But chapter 17, where we're going to be tonight, brings us to one of the most vile kings over Israel, King Ahab. Through the influence of this king, King Ahab, and his wicked wife Jezebel, Israel had started worshiping Baal, who, if you aren't aware, is the heathen god of rain. And he brought in also some other idolatry and, and despicable things to God. So morale was low. Israel was not the great nation that they had once been. Godly leadership, at least under certainly under Ahab, was non-existent. Spiritual leadership was not great. There weren't very many people of God. It was a scary time to be a God-fearing person. Now, I know we think things are bad in our world, but they weren't as bad as 1 Kings 17. I'm not saying we won't get there someday. Maybe we will. But how good or bad things are, very, very relative. It bears us well to pay attention to the lessons of history. So with that in mind, let's read the key text. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So in this bad time, things are going pretty, pretty bad generally, but you know, for, for Elijah, not too shabby. He's, he's been provided. He's got this little, this little camping spot by the brook. 
He's, uh, he's being fed with, with bread and meat uh, by the Lord himself. What's the problem? Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. The next, as an old commentator used to say, the rest of the story. Verses 7 through 16. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now remember, it was Elijah himself who prayed for this. And here he is, some would say, um, suffering the result of the thing he, very thing he prayed for. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, but which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, but go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And as she went and did, as Elijah said, as she and her household, she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. A lot of lessons that we're going to cover, and I'm going to do my best to cover them relatively quickly because I know we have a new member dinner tonight. But I want to remind us of the lessons that Elijah learned and that I think the widow learned too. Number one, there was a time of drought when the brook dried up. Verse 7 says, after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. As we said, Israel was in a drought. It was a national drought, uh, being divided as they were. It was a leadership drought with only been roughly 50 years or so since Solomon had ruled. But now, uh, Ahab was the tenth. Uh, they have seen all sorts of division and difficulty and, and no vision, no direction, infighting. The spiritual drought was certainly... Uh, something that everyone could see. There was a corrupt priesthood. Many in Israel were worshiping the false god of Baal. Scared and afraid for his life, Elijah is on the run because he, he had to prophesy to Ahab and, and Jezebel, and they didn't like what he had to say. The physical drought, of course, uh, was the biggest thing on everyone's mind because without water, you have very little life, you have very little food. James chapter 5, verse 17 reminds us of this. Elijah was a man 
with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Under that answered prayer, Elijah experienced that God was the provider. The brook and the ravens and everything that he had built, or that he had brought, rather, to provide for his prophet. It may have been tempting, I mean, just putting myself in Elijah's shoes, to have trusted in the provision rather than the provider. Uh, Knowing all the, the, the drought that Israel was in, Can't you just see the prophet of God saying, I'm just going to hang out here by the brook. I'm just going to stay here, let the ravens do their job. I'm just going to take life easy as much as one can take life easy. I'm going to seek the safety of hiding rather than put myself out there. Ahab and Jezebel, they don't want to hear what I have to say anyway. Most of Israel doesn't want to hear what I have to say. So I'm just going to sit here in in God's little protective uh, place. And so God dries the brook up. Sometimes in life, your brook dries up. Droughts happen. Sometimes they're financial. Market takes a dip. Your, uh, your goal of retiring at a certain age is extended by about 27 years. Sometimes it's a physical drought. Go to the, have some pain, have something show up on your skin. They do some tests, and all of a sudden, your whole life is in drought. Sometimes it's a relational drought. Sometimes it's an it's a intellectual drought. Sometimes it's a career drought. Sometimes it's a family drought. Sometimes it's even a spiritual drought. In droughts, we are forced to recognize That the source of life is not in the water. It never was. Remember what David said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, for you are with me. In those times, in those dry times of your life, when you are with God, you have everything you need. Hard to remember in the drought. Easy to forget when times are dry. God uses the droughts, in my opinion, for a reason and for a season. And remember, Jesus, of course, spent 40 days in the wilderness. He didn't enjoy any of the fleshly pleasures. He didn't succumb to any of the temptations. And yet, that was just for a time. I've often wondered why he spent 40 days in the desert. What what was the purpose in that? The best judgment I have is is that those times of dryness where he had to sink his soul and his spirit into the well that was his father was preparing him well for the three years of ministry. Over and over again, as we're reminded that Jesus uh, retreated to lowly, lonely places and prayed. What is Jesus doing there? He's going off and he's sinking a well that's far deeper than anyone on earth can drill. 
the disciples, after Jesus was publicly crucified and mocked and killed, they had to wait Friday and Saturday and part of Sunday. And for us, we fast forward through that, but there is there was a purpose in those two and a half days of waiting with no answers. When the brooks dry up, it is imperative that we draw from the deep well of him even more. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and yet in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths smooth and straight. And God's about to make Elijah's path go in a direction he doesn't necessarily want it to go. That's second, the direction when Elijah went up. God gave Elijah direction, not necessarily explanation. And that's hard. For people, if you've, if you've ever parented a three- to five-year-old, there's, there's a lot of that. There's just this desire to know. I know I have to do it, but Why? Now, I know eventually we grow out of that, don't we, with God? I mean, you've never argued with God, I'm sure. We're a pretty holy bunch. Uh, You've never questioned his directives, have you? You've never questioned his purpose or his plans. I'm I'm sure I'm preaching uh, to people who don't need to hear this message. But when God gave Elijah instructions, it was simply a directive. He directed Elijah to Zarephath, which... You know, your geography was about 100, over 100 miles away. It was, wasn't just a great deal of distance geographically. It was a great deal of distance spiritually. Elijah may not have been familiar with Zarephath, but he was certainly familiar with Sidon, the area where Jezebel was from. Zarephath was basically a suburb of Sidon. And it was a center of Baal worship. I mean, it was like going from the frying pan into the fire. I want you to go to the hometown of the woman who hates you more than anything in the world wants you dead. Okay. Perhaps Elijah wondered what God was up to. The name Zarephath, by the way, means crucible, the place of the testing. And Elijah certainly now more than ever, would face a test of trust. Elijah, God sent Elijah to a foreign, godless land to teach him to trust him. To teach him that he could do what God directed him to do, and God was going to take care of him just as much as he did by the brook. Jesus said this about this incident. In Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But I tell you the truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. You look at the context of that. Jesus preaches. He goes to his own hometown. 
and he, of Nazareth, and he preaches a sermon that absolutely... Okay, uh, admittedly, you know, most of my sermons are probably a, a 10, wouldn't you say? I know. Okay, why are you laughing? Sometimes I dip down to an 8, maybe a 7. I understand. But Jesus preaches this sermon. And in the sermon, the crowd's reaction is not an invitation. It's not revival in the church, the, the synagogue. There's not any sort of revival. They pick him up and they're ready to throw him off a cliff. Preachers can relate to that. And God sends Elijah to the hometown of his enemy. He puts him right in the heart of the test. Think about this. God directed Elijah to be totally dependent on a Gentile resident of a godless city. Not merely a Gentile, mind you, but a woman. I know that's not politically correct. But in that culture, that was absolutely a knock on him. And not just any woman, but one who was a single mom, recently widowed. And not just any widow, but a destitute widow fixing her last meal. And ready to die. What? What in the world is God doing? Surely Elijah must have wondered. A poor widow on her last morsels on earth. Here she got nothing. And Elijah says, go give me a cup of water. By the way, go bake me some bread. Can I get you anything else while you're waiting? She's got nothing, and he's making these demands. God's directions don't always make sense. And I, in a real sense of honesty, I think that's the point. Sometimes God has to say, look, I know it doesn't make sense, and I know you don't want to go. And I know it's the last thing in the world you want to do. But if you trust me, you'll do it. So many stories of that in the Bible. We're not going to look at all of them, but the, the story of the snakes in Numbers chapter 21 and, and putting the, the, the bronze snake. And all they had to do was look up there. Now, why couldn't God just heal them? I suppose he could have. But sometimes God needs to know if we trust him enough to do what he says. The story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5 when, when he, you know, he's got this leprosy. He, he thinks he's looking for a great healing. They simply say, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And he's so mad about that, he doesn't even want to do it. And what is it that God has asked you to do? What is it he keeps pressing on your heart? That conversation that you know you need to have. The intervention that you know needs to happen. The thing you know you need to do, you've been putting off. Because you just don't want to. And yet God is relentless, as with us, as he was with Elijah he doesn't need us to understand all the time. And if he, by the way, if he never explains, that's okay. The, the whole story of Job, the whole story is, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And God answers, because I'm God. Deal with it. And that drives some people crazy. We want answers. We want reasons. We want, we'd like a nice outline of all the reasons that God has for treating Job this way. 
Forgetting, of course, that he's God. Dare we ask him any questions? Where were we when he laid out the stars? Where were we when he breathed out the universe? We're going to question him. We're going to go up to heaven. We're finally going to get up there. And now he's going to answer all our questions. What if we never get to know? That's fine with me. That's absolutely fine. I'm not saying he won't answer our questions. But you need to be okay if he doesn't. Three. The despair. The widow, she's given up. The, the, the widow is saying, look, I, I don't have any more answers. I don't have a husband. I can't find a way of bringing an income. My, my son, as you will learn later, we're not going to cover this tonight, but the son is so sick, he, he can't even, you think, well, the son could do something. He's so sick, he's about ready to die and will die. And she's like, I, God, I don't have any more answers. I don't have anything I can do. She was bankrupt. She had nothing prepared and very little to get prepared. She was alone. She was the lowest on the social ladder. She was empty. She was preparing her last meal. Here's a woman who's given up the fight. You ever been there? You ever been ready to give up the fight, throw in the towel? I just can't do it anymore. Whether it's walking on a marriage or walking out on a church, giving up on a relationship, walking away from God. I can't. I don't have any more answers. Maybe you've been there. If you haven't, you may be someday. But God's not just teaching Elijah a lesson about trusting him. He's also teaching this widow a lesson about trust as well. She was empty. She had nothing left. But it is in the emptiness that we find... My picture of this is simply a cup. This, this, this cup is empty. There's nothing in it. If you've ever been at this point where there, you just have nothing left to give, this is when you are in the best position of your life to let God pour into you. There is no other time than we when we are at our emptiest and God has the opportunity to pour into us. And we think about it backwards. We think about it, if I could just fill it with a little more of this and a little more of that and a little more of this, and then I'll get the God thing handled. And at that point, even if we do have our cup fill full, what has happened? We've left out the Lord entirely. If you're a person and you're in an empty spot in life, if you're really at an empty place, if you are this, can I just tell you, you may be primed for one of the greatest points of spiritual revival in your life. But only if you trust him. We wouldn't have been talking about the widow today if she had turned Elijah away. If she had said, you know, I just, 
I'm sorry, I know you're a great prophet, but I just don't have it. Go away and bother someone else. But she was trusting enough in those moments of fear, probably to a God she didn't even know, to have faith. Elijah's concern was interesting. His concern is not the lack of all her, you know, food and provision and all of that. It was her fear. What did he say to her? Elijah said to her, verse 13, do not fear. It's in those empty moments of life when the fear begins to just, it just hits us. And it can pull us even farther away from the Father. If you're in an empty place, wait upon the Lord, number one. And number two, do not fear. It's, it's uh, absolutely destructive to faith. How is God going to bring salvation from a starving widow? So far, Elijah had learned that God can do anything. And he's going to do it the same way that he fed and watered his prophet in the midst of doubt. He's going to do it in the same way that he could save Israel if she would stop trusting in a king and start trusting in the king. It wasn't about how. I think that was the thing he was trying to get for the widow and Elijah. It wasn't about how is God going to get them there. It's about who was going to do it. Elijah had to trust him. The widow had to trust him and do what he said. And this leads us to our fourth point, the divine. The moment when God shows up. The widow's plan, the widow's plan was very simple. She was going to take this little bit of flour. She was going to take this little bit of oil. She was going to roll it together. She was going to make the last cake that she could. She was going to use a few sticks. She was going to make a fire. She was going to cook that cake, and that would be it. And God had other plans. And God has other plans for you as well. When God steps in, and I can see a dark suit was a bad choice. When God steps in, it doesn't matter if it's a little morsel of flour and a few tiny drops of oil. Little is so much in God's hands. And we focus so much on the little instead of thinking of the big that God, the different plan that he has. Don't forget that God has big plans with your little. All he needs is your faith and your trust. God's plan was a multi-day, high-fat, high-carb feast for her and her son and Elijah. Only faith and obedience, only faith and obedience lead to the blessing. Well, I hope that we understand tonight that there is so much more to our predicaments and our droughts and even our plans. God has bigger plans in mind. Her faith was shown by what she did. Reminds us of another poor widow in Luke 21. She showed her faith in what she did. God shows up more, in my opinion, 
in the lives of empty people than he does in the lives of full. There's a reason he uses the empty. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply your needs according to his riches in his glory by Christ Jesus. Final three takeaways. Number one, God uses the droughts. Every drought is for a reason, and every drought is for a season. It will not last forever. You will get through it. It's for a purpose, if for nothing else than just to make sure you still trust Him and not everything else. Number two, obeying obeying exceeds understanding. It's simple trust and obedience. It is better to act without understanding than to understand and not act. It may not make sense, but blessing comes in simple, trusting, childlike obedience. Jesus said, repent and be baptized and you will be saved. You can question that, you can doubt that, you can debate the pages of Scripture. We have many folks on Know Your Bible who love to argue the point. And all God needs them to do is trust Him and trust His Word. And if you're here tonight and you're not ready, you haven't yet begun to obey, I hope you'll take that first step. And the third point is that empty is enough. Trust God in the empty times. Because the empty times don't matter to God. If you're with Him, He will make your cup overflow. Don't despair. Trust God in the times of the emptiness, for that's when it matters the most. Tonight, I want to call you to trust and obey. And if that means taking the first step in Jesus Christ by repenting of sins, confessing faith in Him, and being buried in the waters of baptism, wonderful. But if that means you just haven't been trusting Him like you should, or maybe you're in a drought Or maybe you're feeling exceptionally empty these days and you could use our prayers, our love, our encouragement. We want to help you as well. We want to help you know the God who is there for Elijah, who is there for the widow, and who's there for you. If we can help you in any way, please come. I'll meet you down front as together we stand and sing.